to another episode of Toho Yaro, Japanese Movie Club Podcast. I'm your host this month, Joey Weiser, and with me are my co-hosts Alex Kazanas. Hey, Alex. Hey, Joey. And Scott Dryman. Hey, Scott. Hey, Joey. Hey. Uh, this month, we're going to be talking about the movie Female Prisoner Number 701, Scorpion. ありがとうございます。さて、見せれば um, so yeah, keep, keep that in mind, listeners, and we'll be discussing it, uh, you know, to some extent. Um, this film is from 1972, um, and I wanted to mention that this is a listener suggestion, uh, suggested by our friend Casey, known as Manovsky Article on Twitter, so thanks for that, Casey. Um, he's a big fan of this movie, as am I, um. And I also want to mention uh, that people should listen uh, for kind of mid-show. We'll be talking about instructions on how you can win a copy of Unchained Melody, the films of Meiko Kaji, which is a really cool book uh, put out by Arrow Video. Uh, they're just starting to make uh, to publish books. And this book by Tom Mess uh, goes through uh, Meiko Kaji's whole filmography and history and stuff. So we'll be talking about that a little bit later. Um, so yeah, getting getting into this uh, briefly, uh, just to go over our personal histories. I'd seen this movie a couple times. Um, I'd um, I think seen some images online. I think the first thing I can remember seeing was a screenshot of uh, the character, you know, from one of the Scorpion sequels with Meiko Kaji in the iconic black outfit, and was immediately struck by it. Kind of like, whoa, what is this? And uh, I didn't end up actually watching it until Arrow Video put out their recent box set. And this is the first time watching it for both of you guys, right? Correct. I uh, I knew it a little by reputation, but had not actually seen anything but stills from it before. Mm-hmm. Uh, same. Um, yep, that's basically yeah. it. <laughs> yeah. Um, so the film's directed by Shunya Ito, um, who has has quite a few films under his belt, but... Nothing that really particularly stood out to me. Uh, like uh, he's he directed the first three Scorpion movies. Uh, there were four of the Meiko Kaji run, and then some sequels later with another actress. Um, and he got a lot of acclaim for a 1985 film uh, called Gray Sunset, and also directed a Lupin the Third animated movie, Farewell to Nor- Nostradamus. So. Um, but besides that, um, not, not much that I had actually heard of before. Um, as far as notable actors, uh, of course, there's Meiko Kaji, who plays uh, Nami Matsushima, a.k.a. Matsu the Scorpion. Um, we talked about her in our Lady Snowblood episode, 
Um, but to kind of briefly go over some of the stuff that we didn't cover, um, she started her career at Nikatsu Studios under her given name, Masaka Ota, where she was given fairly standard roles for young women at the time, uh, like love interests and these sort of pleasant schoolgirls and that, that kind of thing. And uh, she was quickly labeled, uh, <laughs> quote unquote, difficult to work with uh, because she was very outspoken and, and often dissatisfied with these roles. Um, eventually, she started acting under this new name, Meiko Kaji, and was given uh, outlaw roles uh, with more adventurous directors. Um, early hits uh, of these uh, included Blind Woman's Curse and the Stray Cat Rock series, but Scorpion is where she really rocketed to superstardom in Japan. And after Scorpion, she continued to act in films off and on uh, for a number of years. As I mentioned, she was in Lady Snowblood as well. Um, but pretty much eventually completely transitioned to television roles, often taking smaller roles that interested her more than the uh, female leads that were offered to her. And um, this, this, you know, this film kind of jump-started the height of her career in, in many ways. Um, <clears throat> other people uh, acting in this movie, uh, there was Rie Yokoyama, who plays Katagiri, um, the inmate hired to kill Matsu. Didn't find much on her. She's in uh, Zatoichi's Conspiracy, one of the many Zatoichi films. Um, Yayoi Watanabe plays Yukiko Kida, a the sort of sweet inmate who Matsu defends in the movie, and uh, she has some big titles in her photography uh, filmography. Um, she's in Wandering Ginza Butterfly, which is another Meiko Kaji film, as well as two of the other Scorpion films. In, in including in one of those, she reprises her role as Yuki. Um, she's also in School of the Holy Beast, which I briefly mentioned in our Truck Yarrow episode, and is in a few Sunny Chiba movies, uh, Wolf Guy and Karate Warriors, uh, <laughs> which I've seen Wolf Guy. That's a pretty crazy one. Um, Yoko Mihara plays uh, Masaki, the devious inmate who attacks Matsu in the shower, and she has um, she has a pretty big uh, career. She is a prolific exploitation actress. Uh, she's uh, in Norifumi Suzuki's Sex and Fury and School of the Holy Beast again, uh, as well as a few of the Hot Springs Geisha films and, and several of the Abashiri prison movies, which are uh, less <laughs> less spicy, but uh, kind of the same era film. Um, Isao Natsuyagi plays uh, Tsugi, uh, Tsugiyo Sugimi, who's the uh, crooked cop, uh, Matsu's ex, who has this huge filmography, but again, kind of not stuff that anything really stood out to me. Um, which is probably due to my own ignorance <laughs> more than anything, but he won the Best Actor Award in 2013 for a film called The Land of Hope and uh, played the commissioner in a 2011 live-action Kochikame movie. <laughs> wow. <laughs> different. Yeah, <laughs> pretty different. It's it's also a cop role, but uh, pretty, you know, different. Yeah, his jawline in this makes him look like a character from a manga or anime or something. He is, the, yeah. like, almost <laughs> cartoonishly handsome. Yeah, now age that a few decades, and you can see how he could fit into a Kochikame movie, I suppose. Yeah. <laughs> um, uh, the last actor I wanted to mention is uh, Fumio Watanabe, who plays the warden, Goda. Uh, he's, again, in uh, uh, featured in School of the Holy Beast, uh, that Norifumi Suzuki exploitation classic that's, like, that I guess borrowed a lot of its cast from this. I guess that they were kind of Toei, um, you know, mainstays. Uh, he's also in one of the Lone Wolf and Cub movies and is in one other Scorpion uh, sequel. Mm, as far as other staff, uh, 
I wanted to highlight real quick. We can kind of get back and talk about the music more in depth later, but the music is by Shunsuke Kikuchi, who's best known in the West for his scores for the original Dragon Ball and Dragon Ball Z series, as well as tons of other anime, film, and TV work. Um, I think he worked exclusively with Toei, or at least largely with Toei. Um, If you're familiar with Kikuchi's scores, you can definitely hear it in this one. And a lot of times when I'm watching some of these kind of old Toei movies, you you, you hear him kind of poking through. Um, But um, yeah, so to get into the movie um, itself, the film begins uh, with a breakout from women's prison. Uh, it's Nami uh, Matsushima, a.k.a. Matsu the Scorpion, and her companion Yuki. And they are stopped or kind of stumble along the way when Yuki suddenly gets her period, which is, uh, they they say, her body reacting to the freedom uh, after being locked at, uh, uh, in prison for so long. And so the dogs chase them uh, from the blood, and Matsu and Yuki get caught. Um, as one of the prison guards stomps on Matsu... She kind of glares up at him, and we get uh, our title sequence as the theme plays. And the credits play over a crazy montage of uh, the naked prisoners doing what I would describe as a kind of, like, slow obstacle course <laughs> um, as the, you know, creepy male guards leer at them. Yeah, I think that thing is designed so you... Uh can't easily hide things in body cavities, but they're mm. basically just using it to, to, uh, uh, ogle the women. Yeah, definitely. Like that, that is very quickly, uh, sets up that dynamic of the sort of male guards versus female prisoners and, um, you know, putting them in the, uh, places as sexual objects and all that stuff. Um, so the the warden is furious that this escape made it as far as it did. And uh, as punishment, they cut back uh, on meals for the entire prison, <laughs> which leads to this crazy scene where they rush into the kitchen and just start dumping food on the floor and stuff. Yeah. Uh, you can see it like was, going in the grate and it's just completely wasteful. If, yeah. If I, yeah. If I say so myself. <laughs> yeah. You don't get the food. Nobody gets the food. And you probably have to clean up the kitchen floor after we dump all this shit everywhere. Um, so the prisoners protest, uh, banging their utensils together, uh, until a group of prisoners in orange dresses, the, the typical prisoners wear these blue and white striped dresses. Um, so these orange dressed, they're they're like the the pink ladies in, uh, (laughs) in Greece. (laughs) Oh yeah. I feel like. Yeah. I call these guys the enforcers. Yeah. They're, yeah, they're they're sort of trustees of the guards. Yeah, they're they're given like special treatment by the guards in exchange for their cooperation, and uh, these enforcers like tell the prisoners to eat what they have and to be mad at Matsu uh, for the, attempting the escape, not the not to blame it on the captors themselves. So, <clears throat> uh, meanwhile, Matsu is tied up uh, in what's basically the bottom of a dungeon cell, like dank and gross and stuff. And she communicates to Yuki, who is on in the next cell over, by hitting their heads on the wall. Um, you know, not really saying much, but just kind of being like, hey, I'm here. Hey, I'm here too. <laughs> um, until one of the enforcers comes in with gruel uh, for Matsu's dinner. She pours it next to Matsu on the floor and tells her to eat it like a dog. And, and before she leaves, she soaks a wet blanket and covers Matsu with it. And while the enforcer is kind of cackling and taunting her, Matsu looks up and just like, 
gives her this like devious smile, uh, smile, like, <laughs> I, I don't know, that's a pretty great moment. I think it's a pretty good like kind of hint as to like what's to come and with Matsu's character and stuff that she's kind of unshakable uh, in a lot of ways. Um, pretty cool act of defiance. Yeah. So next up, we get uh, Matsu's flashback, which I definitely want to like get into how it's filmed and stuff later, but because it's pretty incredible. But like just to kind of cover the beats of the story, uh, she had been in love with this cop, uh, Sugimi, who had um, ended up using her to bust some drug dealers. And uh, he set her up to get caught by them. And after they all uh, raped her, Sugimi busted them for rape as well as the drug charges. And this was all being orchestrated by the, the another Yakuza man, a rival drug dealer, I guess, at, who had paid Sugimi for the bust. And totally betrayed, Matsu ends up uh, attacking Sugimi with a knife and she is arrested. And that's, that's how she ended up here in the uh, women's prison. So back at the prison in current day, uh, we get a scene of the enforcers enjoying their relative luxury at the prison. They're like this sort of grotesque scene of them like out in a garden, like mushing berries and stuff around their lips, like li- like li- lipstick. Um, um, so one of those enforcers uh, who's in charge of uh, feeding Matsu and Yuki goes to fulfill her duties. And uh, what she does, of course, instead is pours the hot soup all over Yuki, taunting her. And so when Matsu overhears this, she's ready when it's her turn and she ends up tripping the enforcer with her uh, blanket and the enforcer ends up pouring the entire pot of hot soup all over herself, badly uh, burning herself. Like when they're (laughs) carrying her away, she almost has like cartoonishly red, like scars and stuff all over her from the, from the soup. Um, So the guards come to take Matsu uh, to, to make her confess that this was no accident, but she refuses to speak and they beat her up and, and taunt her ruthlessly, but she still does not speak. And again, in this, uh, her glare is is super piercing. Um, news of Matsu's attempted escape reaches Sugimi and the Yakuza boss, who uh, fear that they will be targeted uh, by her if she gets out. Um, so they decide to arrange for her to be murdered in prison. Da, da, da. Um Back at the prison, uh, we get a gambling scene between the enforcers uh, and some of the other inmates, and we see that they, we kind of see how they control the place. Uh, Masaki, who's the dealer, is is uh, cheating, and this sort of honorable inmate who um, I don't think is named in the movie. She, I, I looked, I looked her up, and I looked into it, and I found. Uh, her name listed on some Japanese sites, but I wasn't hundred sh- percent sure how to like read the kanji, so I'm gonna just call her <laughs> the good, <laughs> the honorable inmate, I guess. But yeah, I was very confused. She just came, seems to come out of nowhere in the film, and seems very important. Mm-hmm. Is never named, never given any backstory or anything. No, it's just kind of like there's some people in this prison that are, you know, probably, you know. <clears throat> Yeah, the the idea of an honorable yakuza is a, is a pretty like common idea in Japan, and so I think the idea that there would be some good eggs amongst all these criminals wasn't too crazy. But um, so this honorable inmate exposes the the cheating dealer, and there's this brief fight. Um, uh, but the honorable inmate seems to have the enforcers outclassed, 
later <clears throat> in the shower, Masaki arranges to frame the honorable inmate by planting a hairpin um, for escaping, you see, uh, in her clothes. And uh, Matsu sees this and ends up moving the pin to Masaki's clothes instead. And when the guards find this, Masaki begins to unravel and attacks Matsu, kind of figuring that it, this was her doing. Uh, Matsu slams a door in front of Masaki, breaking the glass on her face. And at this point, Matsu kind of transforms into a crazed demon. There's, <laughs> she, there's this like creepy green light that suddenly fills the whole place, especially on her face and and she gets this like demonic kabuki-esque makeup on her face. Yeah. Kind of turns into Bull Nakano. Mm. The uh, the Japanese women's wrestler. <laughs> oh. <laughs> yeah, yeah. This is a, this is a pretty good like early uh kind of scene of of things getting kind of a little more surreal and stuff, which I I love. So she she picks up the glass and kind of chases uh Matsu around, but uh Matsu ends up dodging. And the warden ends up being stabbed in the eye instead. With this, the spell breaks, and Masaki's lighting and face kind of return back to normal uh, as she's kind of shocked at what's happened. And the enraged warden chokes Masaki and and demotes the enforcers back to regular status. Um, and as punishment, the entire prison is forced to dig uh, and then refill holes in this kind of big dirt yard. Um, and they're they're all angry and dissatisfied again, and the, and some of them are blaming Matsu, but it's not a hundred percent clear that she was doing this on purpose. Um, again, similar to like what happened with the soup. Um, and so this is when Sugimi arrives and takes Katagiri aside. He offers to give her freedom if she kills Matsu. Um, a thing that I think is interesting here is that <clears throat> these two seem to have a history, and so kind of perhaps he had similarly duped her you know and in, in one of his schemes but he's um kind of bribing her with with the thought of freedom or something to to get out if she kills matsu so she agrees to take on the job and um and and he leaves and so matsu and sugimi before he leaves uh, exchange looks again and we see that classic mekokaji fury in her eyes um and now the the warden decides to put matsu into uh, solitary confinement again, and they suspect that she's behind both Masaki's rampage in the shower and the uh, burning of the enforcer with the soup, uh, but need proof. They they need a confession for her. So she's joined in confinement by another inmate named Kito, and as we learn later, Kito is actually an officer uh, planted to try and get Matsu to confess, but instead <laughs> what happens is that Matsu seduces Kito, and we get this kind of funny moment afterwards where uh, after failing her mission, Kito is pleading to go back in and try again, now completely smitten with Matsu. And they, you know, the, the guards rip her shirt open and we see that she's covered in hickeys or <laughs> lipstick marks or whatever. Yeah, I think they're supposed to be hickeys. No, I think they are. Yeah, why would they give her lipstick in the prison? She's not one of the enforcers. No, no, yeah, no. It's de They're definitely hickeys, but they totally look like uh, cartoon kiss marks all over her or something. Yeah. <laughs> So I don't know. That's that's some of that kind of like classic uh, Toei, you know, lowbrow humor or whatever. Um, so now uh, Matsu's back out uh, amongst all the prisoners and, and they are now all digging like one giant hole. Um, I guess more sort of punishment slash busy work. And the guards excuse the rest of the prisoners from digging, but force Matsu to stay in and dig herself. 
Um, she's not to be let out until she confesses, and she just digs and digs through the night, and the next day, the guards bring the other prisoners to start shoveling dirt, dirt like, back into the hole, um, and uh, there's this sort of touching scene where Yuki doesn't want to, uh, you know, throw dirt on Matsu, but not Matsu gives her, uh, like, a nod that it's okay, and and I would say gives the only kind of genuinely happy smile in the movie uh, when she sees that Yuki complies. She's kind of like, okay, good. Yuki's not going to get harassed by the, the guards and gives a kind of like happy smile. Um, Matsu continues to stoically dig and eventually uh, quickly digs a section out under an enforcer who is kind of like messing with her, um, who falls down. And hits her head on the rock and is knocked unconscious or possibly dead. I don't know. She foams at the mouth at this scene in a kind of comical scene. So, I don't know. Maybe she was hit with hockey, right, Alex? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yep, that's but, right. Um, so, anyway. Uh, eventually, after hours of digging, the prisoners all start to collapse. And finally, Matsu goes down. And, and a guard attacks Matsu, trying to like force her to get up and work. They're kind of trying to either work her till she dies or confesses. Uh, when suddenly Yuki uh, comes down in a heroic moment and slices the head of uh, this guard with her shovel, and he dies in a glorious slow-mo, blood-spreading fashion <laughs> as the sun sets and uh, the other, and then tragically another guard shoots Yuki. Um, the prisoners riot at this point, and we get this like really cool-looking like orange and pink lit scene. Uh, with the sunset as every as sort of chaos is happening. Um, so Matsu slips off in the chaos with Yuki, and uh, who's dying in her arms. Katsukiri at this point tries to take uh, this opportunity to shoot and kill Matsu, but she is stopped by the honorable inmate. Um, as Yuki dies, she writes Katsukiri on Matsu's hand in blood, so Matsu knows what's up. Um, the rest of the inmates have taken some guards hostage at this point and are holed up in a warehouse. Uh, there's the warden, the other guards outside, and they're kind of at a standoff. The women taunt and, uh, I guess, rape the uh, hostages. And, and definitely a scene that seems like it's like, you know, again, sort of comedic, sort of fetishy, but also, you know, plot-wise supposed to be them kind of like being terrifying or whatever. Um uh, and they ask the guards to bring them Matsu. The warden complies, hoping that uh, they'll take out their frustrations on her and that this will all blow over. Uh, so Matsu is brought to them, and the other women attack her and string her up on this chain hanging from the ceiling. Um, Katagiri kicks things up a notch at this point by uh, burning Matsu with a hot light bulb. And I don't know, something about that, like, is especially rough to me. I, there's, like, smoke coming up and stuff, which I'm sure was a special effect, but it just, like, uh, it just kind of gives me shivers. Um, time passes, and as they all sleep, Katsukiri sneaks over to where Matsu is hanging and pours gasoline, uh, I think, or turpentine or something flammable, on the floor and attempts to light it uh, using electrical wires. Uh, the, the, the honorable inmate uh, sees this and wakes everyone up, showing that Katagiri was actually planning to burn them all alive uh, just to get Matsu. And the women turn on Katagiri, strip her, throw her uh, in, or throw a net over her, and hang her in Matsu's place. Then, uh, at this point, the guards bring over several big barrels of food uh, for the women, but <laughs> this food is, in fact, a Trojan horse. 
Um, the guards pop out of the barrels once they're inside the warehouse, and there's the standoff between the guards and the prisoners uh, with their hostages. And when things get chaotic, uh, Matsu pours more oil on the ground and lights it, and uh, now the entire warehouse is in flames. Um, At the beginning of this scene, uh, I was seeing them wheel the stuff in, and I was like, surely, like, those those things are full of like tear gas or something and it's, uh-huh. and they're going to get them. I did not think that they would have actually just put a bunch of people in there to go, go in and get surrounded. But I guess that plan <laughs> worked anyway. So it's dudes. <laughs> it's <laughs> yeah. really funny when they pop out. Yeah. It was pretty, I think unintentionally kind of comedic moment there. Um, so still stuck up in the net. Uh, Katagiri ends up burning to death as Matsu and the honorable inmate look on. Uh, Katagiri at this point is pleading for her life, telling Matsu that she was also being used by Sugimi, but Matsu uh, just replies to be deceived as a woman's crime, which is a very cool line that is also steeped in sexism, <laughs> but also kind of has enough kind of pathos behind it to like pack an interesting punch, which I don't know, kind of I think encapsulates this movie in a nutshell. <laughs> yeah, no, um, in like a kind of Chicago esque fashion. Mm. kind of puts into perspective like how many of the women are in here because they were tricked by men yeah 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 for sure so uh matsu escapes uh in the fire and the warehouse burns to the ground um next we get this incredibly cool montage uh set to urami bushi the the film's theme um uh, Matsu is roaming the city now wearing uh, all black including this like black floppy hat and trench coat that ends up becoming Scorpion's signature look. Um, she's tracking down those involved in her framing and uh, is fatally stabbing them one by one. Uh, I love that whenever she appears to her victims, that 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 same like green light covers them as they give a really good like hammy shocked face. Um, yeah, this scene's great. <laughs> um, so the Yakuza boss uh, gets a call from Sugimi who informs him that Matsu has escaped and is on a killing rampage. Um, the the boss just laughs it off and is unconcerned. Uh, and as he turns his back to his office door, which I think may also be like an elevator door, mm-hmm. um, uh, Matsu appears behind him and, and he becomes her next victim. Uh, I love that scene too. Um, she ends up hanging him from his neck outside the office and Sugimi knows now that he is in fact in danger he goes back to the police station, uh, thinking that he'll be safe there, but Matsu is waiting there for him. She confronts him in the elevator, and after playing a little uh, knifey gunny, <laughs> he <laughs> he kisses her, and, and she bites his tongue and stabs him in the leg. Um, and then up on the roof uh, of the station, she finally kills him. Uh, a very satisfying kill, in my opinion. Um and uh, finally, we see uh, that Matsu returns to jail, uh, uh, imprisoned for all these murders, I'm sure. And she continues to be, you know, female prisoner scorpion. Dun, dun, dun. Um, so before we get into our critiques, uh, I wanted to talk a little bit about some just kind of like history and stuff of this movie. Um, this was originally a comic uh, or manga or gekika, whatever your flavor uh, <laughs> you want to call it. Um, by Toro Shinohara. Um, I don't know if you guys have kind of looked into this at all. Have you seen pictures from the comic or anything? Uh, nope. 
No. I haven't seen any. Yeah. Um, there's a cool, uh, in the in the DVD set, there's like a little uh, interview with the manga artist and stuff that's pretty interesting. Like, uh, he had been a gag uh, comic artist who uh, his magazine, in an attempt to bring in more female readers, actually asked him to do a female-led story. And so he came up with this prison movie, but couldn't, as he was writing it, he couldn't like fit like gags and stuff into it and ended up becoming more and more serious. And then it became kind of what it, what it is uh, now. Uh, So Toei obtained the rights uh, to this with kind of a few, like two intent main intentions. Uh, First of all, their top female star Junko Fuji, who was the star of the red peony gambler series had recently retired and they were looking for someone to take her place and also, they wanted to recreate the hit that they had in the late 60s with the Abashiri Prison uh, series, which is the the prison movies starring Ken Takakura that kind of made him a superstar and was one of Toei's like, most popular series at the time. Um, the Japanese film industry was shifting at this time and, and heading towards more of a focus on exploitation. So having a female-led prison movie just like seemed like a sure thing <laughs> to them, for sure. And... Um, so Toei brought on Shunya Ito, who had worked as an assistant director on several films, but uh, never as a lead director before this film. And he met with uh, Meiko Kaji, and he wasn't sure about her, uh, having kind of seen one of her movies where she wasn't uh, acting super tough and stuff. But after they had a fiery argument about the amount of nudity required of her, uh, he saw the rage and intensity that she could bring to the role. <laughs> And uh, after this initial meeting, Kaji was also dubious uh, about the film and about Ito. But after reading the manga, uh, she felt that there was something interesting uh, in it and she wanted to pursue this. So she agreed to meet with him again. And in, in these uh, future meetings, she um, she kind of became more interested in this idea, uh, this idea that Ito wanted to create called fiction within fiction, which is just basically kind of like that hyper stylized world like. That, that part in the shower scene and stuff like that. Um, and she had also uh, instructed uh, heavy rewrites uh, to the film um, where most of her lines were cut. In the manga and in the initial uh, script, uh, Matsu had much more uh, of a speaking role, but um, Kaji thought it would be interesting to try to convey more silently um, and, and, and ended up cre- creating this sort of silent and powerful iconic character. Uh, it was kind of funny. I was watching this with uh, my wife, Amy, and she is she's watched the Lady Snowblood movies with us. Mm. And uh, at some point, I think pretty early on, uh, she was like, do they just hire this lady to stare at people? And I was like, <laughs> yes, and it's great. Yes. yes. In the second Scorpion movie, I believe Matsu has one line. Wow. Uh, <laughs> yeah. Uh, it's pretty great, and but it's kind of because of the success of this that Lady Snowblood happened, and I think that they were kind of playing with her strengths from that, because in other movies, she speaks more, uh, for sure. Well, she definitely but, com- conveys a lot with her face. Yeah. Uh, it's it's quite a talent, and I really, uh, I think, uh, does enhance the character a lot. She's just kind of a silent badass who, like, slowly bides her time until she gets her revenge it's it's pretty awesome yeah yeah also it makes stuff like this the smile Mm -hmm. uh when she when she sees yuki going back to work feel a lot more special and genuine 
Yeah. Uh, in addition to just being good at, at face acting, the contrast there is, is pretty striking. And it makes it a lot more tough when immediately after that uh, Yuki is killed. Mm-hmm. Yeah, for sure. Um, so the, these kind of having this pair of headstrong creative forces, uh, Ito and Kaji, working together and occasionally against each other, um, I think is one of the things that made Scorpion kind of rise above the base exploitation material that it, it is on the surface level and that I think the studio basically wanted it to be. <laughs> um, and so the film struck a chord with audiences and was a huge hit. Um, Shunya Ito won the Best Newcomer Award from the Directors Guild for it, and Meiko Kaji became an icon. Um, the other element of Scorpion that cemented it as a mega hit was its theme, uh, Urami Bushi, which I mentioned earlier, which means grudge song. Um, the lyrics of this song are were actually written by the director, Shunya Ito, and, and arranged by uh, Shunsuke Kikuchi and then sung by Meiko Kaji. Um, Toei didn't initially release uh, a single of Urami Bushi uh, or even list it in the credits of the first film. But when Scorpion was a hit, demand was so high that a single was released and it, it eventually became a top 10 hit. Um, Kaji recorded a new version of Urami Bushi for each film and a few times afterwards, bringing the total uh, of versions of the song to six until this year when she recorded a seventh version for her new album, uh, Tsuyoku, which means uh, reminiscence, which uh, just came out or is coming out soon um, as we're recording this. Um, uh, this is by far Kaji's best-known song in Japan and is known in the West as well as one of the two songs included in the Kill Bill soundtrack, along with uh, Lady Snowblood's Flower of Carnage. Yep. you guys have any thoughts on the song? Oh, yeah, I love the song. Um, obviously, I first heard it uh, in Kill Bill, and um, I kind of loved it. Like as soon as I heard it and um, it's been, you know, it's been in my iPod for quite some time, even before mm-hmm. I saw this movie. And, uh, you know, it, it's kind of awesome to hear such a familiar song and, and know it's it's roots. Yeah, I didn't uh, I generally try not to do research before watching the movie for the first time. So when I was watching it and that came on. I was like, this sounds incredibly familiar. And I like, I've heard this before and I don't know where. And it was afterwards that I went and looked and realized that it was uh, from Kill Bill and probably from other places too, because I imagine this uh, shows up a lot on like just other, other things, Mm -hmm. other media on like YouTube and stuff. Yeah. But yeah, it's great. Yeah. Yeah. Well, cool. Um, this is a pretty good time to move into critiques, but before that, I wanted to mention our contest. Contest, contest, contest. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, so as I mentioned, um, I, we are giving away a copy of a book all about Meiko Kaji and her career uh, called Unchained Melody, the films of Meiko Kaji uh, from Arrow Films um, and written by Tom Mess, who's an expert who's uh, done a lot of commentary and, and stuff for them as well. Um, and it's a really, really cool book. That's a lot of this info comes from that, um, as well as some stuff from the um, their uh, you know DVD, Blu-ray box sets and stuff. And it has a lot of stuff about her recording career and 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 stuff as well too. So very cool book. Uh, just came out last year, and we're giving away for free if you uh, email us at tohoyaro at gmail dot com uh, with the subject line book contest. 
and, and then in the body of the email, just tell us uh, your favorite Japanese film, or if you have a hard time choosing one, just tell us one that you like, or maybe one that you'd like us to cover, and we can add it to our requests list. And um, we're going to randomly choose one of our uh, these entries to win the free book. Uh, and this will be free shipping to folks in the U.S. And for international listeners, we'll have to kind of calculate some postage and maybe have you cover some of the postage if, if, if it's a lot or something. You'll have to excuse us. We're still a pretty uh, <laughs> small operation here. But, um, but it'll still be cheaper than ordering the books for yourself, for sure, if you're uh, international. But... Uh, I'm going to say, how about, since this is our April episode, the deadline will be May 1st. And so May 1st, we'll see who's uh, sent us emails and um, put it into a little randomizer. And we'll choose somebody to win this free book. So I thought that would be fun. And happen to have an extra copy on hand to give away. Um, So uh, what Um, did... Before we get into critiques, I'd also like to... uh talk a little bit about the arrow uh blu-ray dvd collection oh okay sure um, i rented this on uh on youtube which it's pretty easily easily accessible and i think the other female prisoner scorpion movies are on there as well but uh the box set of all these movies from arrow uh is, is i'm tempted to get it now and the packaging on that looks super cool yeah, the packaging is incredible, and the special features are great, too. Each disc has, like, at least one, usually multiple interviews with uh, directors or film critics and stuff uh, talking about the films. And there's, like, a a, book, a booklet that's about as thick as one of the DVDs uh, cases, you know. It's a pretty thick book that has an interview uh, with Meiko Kaji and an interview with uh, the, the manga artist, as I mentioned, and essays and stuff. It's a really cool uh, cool thing, for sure. And it has all yeah. four of the original Meiko Kaji movies in it. So, yeah, Arrow does excellent work. Uh, if if um, you are ever curious about purchasing one of their uh, box sets, uh, it's definitely worth the money. Um, I purchased the Battles Without Honor and Humanity set a couple of years ago, and it's A+. Plus. It's really great. Yeah. Um, I yeah. should also mention that a couple of the uh, Scorpion movies are on Amazon Prime uh, to watch for free if you have a Prime subscription. Cool. Uh, I, I believe uh, Grudge Song is one of them. Um, okay. Awesome. Yeah, the um, Grudge Song and Jailhouse 41 are the two other uh, – Shunya Ito movies, uh, which have a lot of this kind of like crazy, he just kind of builds more and more as far as the sort of visual flares and stuff. There's a lot of like crazier stuff that goes on in those second ones. Um, and then the fourth one is uh, by uh, Hasebe. I don't remember what his first name is, but he's one of the Stray Cat rock directors. And she kind of specifically asked for him to come in and, and do that one after Ito was off the project. And that one's a little bit more sort of straightforward, uh, but it still has, he kind of brings it at the end uh, a little bit more of the sort of like surreal, uh, surreality and stuff. Um, so yeah, all four I definitely recommend, but those first three are, I think, the most uh, solid of the of the four. Um, so yeah, I'm curious what you guys thought about this movie. Um, so Scott, you had mentioned uh, on Twitter that you watched this with your wife and uh, there had maybe been some uh, exclamations like, Oh God, <laughs> Joey, what have you done? <laughs> so what did you think about the movie? Uh, I found it incredibly frustrating. Mm. Um, 
there's so much in this I like, and then the exploitation stuff is was a lot more than I was uh, expecting. Yeah, which I I don't know much about Toei's like exploitation era output, but I was expecting maybe something a little more toned down from uh, such a big notable company. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, there's so much in the movie that's just like, uh, even though nothing's explicit, it's incredibly like weird pornographic torture stuff. And it takes up so much of the movie. Yeah. And what I was expecting, uh, from what I knew about the movie, yeah, there's going to be like girls in showers and stuff and guards are going to be mean. But, uh, what I was actually mostly expecting from the movie is when she gets out of prison and goes on the murder spree. Cause that was kind of like the cool part that mm-hmm. I knew about. And I was a little disappointed that that was so short, mm-hmm. but uh, overall, like the, the direction and the way everything looked was incredibly good. And I wanted more of that. And uh, less of the exploitation stuff. So it is is very frustrating seeing the the balance that they came out with. But uh, but yeah, is I I definitely think it's worth it. And like I said, I'm I'm very interested in seeing the other movies to see the other kind of like crazy stuff this director does visually. Mm-hmm. But I was uh, the just in general the writing I felt was super weak on top of the like uncomfortable stuff. Yeah. Yeah. How about you, Alex? I liked it. Um, I liked it a lot, actually. Uh, it was really easy to follow. It was very simple. Um, yeah. Script was, uh, okay, I guess. Mm-hmm. Uh, but the thing that really drew me to the movie were, um, was the directing style. Mm-hmm. Like, there were a lot of really interesting techniques used. I believe uh, uh, the version I watched said that this was his debut movie in the credits. Yeah, and I was very impressed by that. Um, he gets like for his first movie, a lot of the shots are really ballsy. Mm-hmm. Like they're they're really um, really brazen, and I am I was I was very impressed by that. Like we can get into that in a little bit, but. Uh, I thought that it went a little a little hard on the um uh on the abuse for um I was I kept thinking to myself, wow, I hope geez, there better be some really good payoff. <laughs> <laughs> and uh yeah, there's some there's some pretty decent payoff. Um it moves pretty quick, the movie, which I liked aside from the big um uh, hole digging scene, which I thought went on way too long. Yeah. Like that they that was their um that was their birdcage to use a a, a one piece <laughs> colloquialism that I've been using. Uh, but uh, yeah, I liked it. Uh, Ka- uh Meiko Kaji's fucking awesome. Uh, yeah, she owns this role for sure. Yeah, yeah. When I first saw this movie, I didn't quite know what to make of it. I think for the basically the same reasons what you guys are saying that the exploit the exploitation material like made me very uncomfortable and still does uh, in several scenes. But, uh, you know, like you said, Kaji puts in an incredible performance and Ito's directorial decisions are stunning. 
Um, it's a movie that I love for a lot of reasons, but is a tough one to recommend um, for a lot of reasons as well. Um, yeah. A lot of the criticism that I see around this movie, uh, including a lot of the stuff that you see uh, in that Arrow box set, uh, kind of revolves around whether or not it's feminist, and if so, how intentional was that? And, you know, this is not something that I feel super comfortable, you know, weighing in on definitively. <laughs> yeah, here, let's us three guys talk about that. But like, um, you know, so I still grapple with this a bit, but I, I've seen a lot of arguments for why it is and, and also for why it isn't, you know, and I think that's what makes it interesting and, and powerful as a film uh, to kind of have that um, uh, ability to kind of go back and forth with it. Um, I'll, I'll tell you that the one scene that made me cringe the most was um, when Katagiri is actually getting burned alive. Mm. That out of all the scenes, that that's the one that really made me like, because just because you know you you hear, you hear yeah. Getting I have a alive. really tough time with the part where the guards are trying to get Matsu to confess, and so they're like going at her with the they're with using the baton. their uh, batons as yeah. obvious phalluses, you know. Yeah, like, that's the one that that that's the one where Amy was like, "Joey, no, why?" <laughs> yeah, no, I don't like it either, Amy. <laughs> yeah, but yeah, that's the one that even after seeing this a few times, I am just kind of like, "Oh man, I just yeah. really wish this wasn't in here or wasn't as heavy," you know. It um, reminded um. Well, I after watching this movie and Lady Snowblood, it's very clear to see where Kill Bill came from. Mm. Like, Kill Bill is basically these two movies stitched together. Yeah. Like, it's, uh, Well, yeah. I definitely feel like that's the kind of thing that what's interesting about this movie is that that's the kind of thing that is being included definitely to, uh, you know, to, to titillate audiences and stuff. But it's pushed so far and it's like, the guys are so bad and stuff that you, you can't help but feel like while it was included to kind of check that mark off a list, it was also kind of subverted in the way that it makes it so bad, you know, makes it so gross. Uh, right. I don't know. Um, it, it's hard to know. Like, I can't, I wouldn't say necessarily that Shunya Ito was 100%, uh, you know, had the right motives in mind when making this movie. But I definitely feel like he was going for things that are more interesting than just kind of like, man, this will get our rocks off, you know? Yeah. Uh, jumping back to the category burning alive scene, I can't remember what exactly happens in that scene, but I thought it was interesting that uh, Matsu is kind of absolved in that situation because after she says the line about uh, being deceived as a woman's crime or whatever, that she's about to leave, but before she can leave category to die, something happens or somebody shoots and it actually snaps the rope and that's what drops her into the fire. So mm -hmm. it's not, uh, Matsu couldn't have done anything anyway in that situation. Yeah. I was, I'm always kind of a little like, you know, she's standing there with her friend, with the, the honorable inmate and the inmates like, this is your chance to go. And I'm kind of like, why can't you both go? Yeah. But, uh, she, yeah, her the other woman didn't seem interested in leaving. She was just like, "I'm the wise lady that just watches things and stands here." Yeah. Um, 
So as we've talked a little bit about the the sequels, as I've said, get kind of more and more visually inventive and go some pretty crazy places that are also really entertaining. But I do think that seeing this one first is good because it kind of gives you that emotional core. It gives you uh, Matsu's backstory and you really see kind of like what she went through to get to the point where she is now. Um, and I think that that kind of enhances the sequels. Uh, so where I might point to someone to the second or third film if they just want to see some crazy cool looking stuff. I I did want to start with this one in our reviews. And uh, when I think about maybe showing these movies, uh, you know, to somebody or and recommending it to someone, I have a hard time saying to skip this one because I feel like it just gives a lot of, um, I don't know, more, I, not necessarily depth, but kind of like weight to, what you see in the in the in the sequels, um, and and then the other thing that I love about this movie is just kind of the emotional release that you get at the end. Uh, you know, we see Kaji free on the streets, uh, stabbing dudes, and it's it's very powerful. It's it's a it's a tough road to get there, but I I find that very satisfying. Um, so uh, let's talk about favorite parts of the film. Um, uh, Alex, what was your favorite part? Oh man, I really well. <laughs> despite the content, I really loved uh, her backstory. Uh, yeah, it is. Wow, I was really impressed. It was shot really. So the way it was shot initially kind of reminded me a lot of Tokyo Drifter. Mm. Um, yeah, you know, totally. With, yeah, and uh, there's this the, the scene where she's sort of laying there, and you. Uh, there's this transition where Sugima, uh, after he arrests the uh, Yakuza, or, or yeah, the Yakuza, and they transition back to where he's getting paid off. There's this really great like on set, um, rotating uh, wall, mm-hmm. bit, and it keeps uh, Mako in the foreground, and this happens in the background, so it's. It's something that could have been done in, you know, through editing, but it happens like a stage play. Actually, the entire the entirety happens like a stage play, like all of that backstory. Yeah, there's a lot of that. So this is what I chose for mine as well. So I'm going <laughs> to share it with you. Yeah, um, this is there's a lot of that. That's there's a lot of scenes in that backstory. That's just one shot that feels like it's multiple shots because they use like body doubles and stuff. Um, it's very interesting. Like they they go straight from a shot of like uh, after um, they've slept together and stuff, there's a shot of Sugimi and, and who you would think is uh, Meiko Kaji uh, lying together. And then it just like pans up and then you see the nightclub and then, um, and then uh, Meiko Kaji comes walking down those staircases. And like, if you're not really paying attention, you're just kind of like, okay, cool. Uh, one shot to another shot, but like it's all one shot and it's actually done because it's like, there was a body double of hers and, during that rotating uh, scene that that's like a body double of him uh, on one side of the stage. And yeah, it's like a stage play uh, very much like Tokyo drifter. That's, that's an interesting comparison. Yeah. During the whole flashback, uh, it just turns into this like weird art film in a really cool way. And when they did that first transition into the nightclub, I was like, man, this is, this is really cool. And then when, uh, 
after the rape when she's laying there and it does the transition with the rotating set piece. I was like, yo, this is nuts. <laughs> like, it's so crazy the the way they're doing the, those shots and the kind of transition uh, after that when she's laying on the... Which, uh, jumping back a little, the actual rape itself, the, the camera angles used are like very uncomfortable and disorienting and it oh my god yeah there's a lot of it is filmed through like a clear platform that she is laying on top of and it's shot from underneath as if it's underneath the ground and they really make sure you see all the dudes faces like grinning and looking horrible yeah but uh the scene after that when she is just laying on that weird like bubble disco floor with the lighting changes and her hair comes up Mm-hmm. And the the transition of like, which I, I I definitely see that being inspiration for her in uh, in Lady Snowblood, where they they talk about she's in uh, Ashura mm. because in this she like very definitely becomes a spirit of vengeance with her hair shaping going straight up and that green light that becomes a motif for whenever she's getting revenge. Yeah, they're like shining this like red orange light under the glass, uh, so it looks like. She's kind of burning, uh, you know, with rage in that way. And then they shine the sort of creepy green light on her and she's like doing her most intense uh, glare uh, <laughs> uh, directly at you, the the viewer. And it's it's very intense. Um, uh, Kikuchi's score is in full Dragon Ball mode in that in that flashback as well. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um did you have anything else you wanted to say about that? I'm sorry, I didn't want to step on on that, Alex. But <laughs> oh no, no, not at all. Like, I think it's kind of a testament to how awesome that scene is that we all had something to say about it. Uh, I'm, I was more, I was really blown away by the fact that like that's his first movie and he's already doing these really ballsy things. Like, yeah, I, for sure, yeah, he had something to show. You know, yeah, he had been an assistant director, so he had some of the like maybe technical know how, but. He hadn't gotten a chance maybe to show off his stuff yeah. like this. Um, how about you, Scott? Did you have a favorite part you wanted to highlight? Um, my favorite uh, my favorite scene is just when she's going through the city, like, killing all the guys. And yeah. it's just a really yeah. fun montage. But, like, extending out from the flashback scene, my favorite part of the movie, like I said, is just how the the way everything looks and these really interesting kind of rule-breaking transitions and things that he does. But even even outside of the flashback, um, you have the shower scene where uh, Masaki turns into a a demon and is running around, the lighting changes in there, and and there's like a smoke machine and stuff. And and then later on, uh, when they're... When they're digging the smaller holes, it's an actual like outside shot. But when they're digging the one big hole that's on a set, and there's a huge matte painting for the sky, kind of like that reminded yeah. me a lot of. Uh, I can't remember the name of the movie. Uh, um, Tokyo Drifter. No, no, uh, I know what you're talking about uh, no, the, the Halloween movie that we were watching. Yeah. Uh, quite on. Yeah, quite on. Uh, yeah, it reminded me a lot of Quaidon. And there's an interesting, I can't remember when the transition is there, where it goes from like kind of uh, where it transitions between like red and blue really abruptly and is super mm. interesting. And just like 
all those kind of things, which like it's super cool that it's his first movie, and I feel like he had a lot to prove and was being like, I, I don't have to follow conventional movie rules. I'm gonna do this weird, fun stuff, and yeah. like that's the stuff that I want to see more of. And I'm sad that he has not directed more things. I'm gonna have to sift through what he has done to see if he he keeps that kind of weird style up. Yeah, for sure. Uh, at least not stuff that like stuck out to me when I was looking over his IMDb and Wikipedia and stuff. But who knows? There's probably some great stuff in there for sure. Um, yeah, give me a good uh, s- weird sky matte painting, and I'm sold. I think. <laughs> yeah. Um, do you guys have anything else that you wanted to mention before we uh, move into our outro? Nope. No. Um. I, as much as I love Meiko Kaji in these movies, I would like to actually find something where she has some dialogue and talks to people rather than just glaring. Like, mm. I love that so much, and she's so good at it, but I want to see... I'd, I'd like to know more range from her at some point. Mm. Yeah, I really want to see... I still haven't seen um, the uh, Wandering Ginza Butterfly, which is supposedly more comedic. Um, but it's like a Yakuza movie uh, from Toei, I think, at that time. And that's what uh, Shunya Ito had seen and was like, I don't think Kaji's right for this movie. So, like, uh. I'm curious about that um, for sure. Um, but I don't know. Uh, uh, and I would kind of like to see every once in a while I see screenshots of back when she was acting under her you know, given name and she was just being a kind of like nice girl uh, in a romance movie or something and I would kind of like to see one of those just to kind of see what that's like you know Um. Uh, the only other thing that I can think that that we might have missed was mentioning that uh, the police officers are real like 70s cop scumbag looking guys oh man really pleasing way the guy with the mustache and the sunglasses yeah the guy the guy that gets the gun yeah that guy shows up in every single fucking scene and it's super <laughs> funny I don't know why but like just every single time he shows up I'm just like this guy <laughs> you can tell this guy is a dick <laughs> yeah like oh I wonder like is his mustache like they, like he just this guy has his own look. I I also <laughs> love watching kind of the warden get disfigured and stuff. Like he gets that kind of gross eye, and then he ends up wearing these cool sunglasses where one one of the lenses is blacked out, and yeah. gives him a very good iconic look. His, you know what? His eye didn't look as gross as it should have been. I'm yeah, it kind of looked like she stabbed next to his eye or something. Yeah, <laughs> which yeah. I don't know if that was like we. We don't have the budget to do a real good looking thing here or what. Yeah, this is definitely uh, pretty cheap looking in a lot of ways, uh, movie. Um, a thing that I found was interesting um, when I was reading up on it is that they shot the movie in sequence. And whereas um, Toei typically, like like most Japanese films at that time, gave people about a month to film a movie... Um, because they filmed it in sequence, it took way longer, like four months or something like that. Um, yeah. Um, but yeah, so, uh, that's great. I'm, I'm glad that we had a nice conversation about female prisoner number seven, one scorpion. Uh, what are we going to be talking about next month, Scott? Uh, next month we're going to be talking about 1966's Daimajin. 
Oh, uh, cool. This is a movie suggested by a friend of the podcast, Robert, who is, publishes the wrestling scene, The Atomic Elbow. Oh, hey, Robert. Uh, <laughs> uh, Daimajin is about a uh, giant stone warrior who awakens to take vengeance on some uh, folks in a nearby village and is a movie that I watched a long time ago on some random uh, movie channel. And I remember the uh, the titular monster uh, warrior looking really goofy and cool at the same time. So I'm excited to revisit this. Nice. Yeah. Um, the uh, local uh, bar that shows movies around here that I'm kind of involved with uh, just finished up a an all giant monster movie themed month. And I ended up showing Godzilla versus Hedorah, but one of the Daimajin movies was on my short list of movies to show, and so I'm glad that I'm going to get a chance to watch one of those again. I've seen them, but uh, I'd love to watch them again. Uh, also, as, as a teaser, the the composer for the movie is uh, none other than Akira Ifukube, so I'm excited to yeah. uh, compare how this soundtrack stacks up with his other work. Mm-hmm. Um. And what else do you have to plug, Scott, while you're while you're going? Uh, people can find me on Twitter at VriskaChat, V-R-I-S-K-A-C-H-A-T. Um, I don't know. Talk to me on there about movies. Let me know some <laughs> some stuff that we should be watching and checking out. If not just suggestions for the show, but uh, things may, we might want to look at in general. Um, otherwise, uh, find me on online playing dragon ball fighters being real bad <laughs> cool how about you alex you can find me on twitter and instagram at dude exclamation all one word uh you can listen to me on the one piece podcast and uh check out the twitter account weeb simpsons which i may or may not have anything to do with <laughs> awesome and uh you can find me on twitter at joey weiser and joeyweiser.tumblr.com for updates about Comics, my comics that I, I do, I do the Merman graphic novel series, which is a five-book series, out all out now, uh, available in various forms. Um, let's see, coming up in June, I'll be at Heroes Con, uh, and in May, I'll be at TCAF, not tabling, so look out for me there if you're, if you're around. Um, and then please follow Toho Yaro, our podcast uh, has a Twitter, at Toho Yaro, uh, where we uh, tweet about our upcoming episodes and any sort of Japanese movie news that we can come across, or just sometimes people tweet cool images or GIFs or things, and we, we try to retweet that stuff. And like us on Facebook, where we also um, uh, post about upcoming and current episodes. And you can email us at tohoyaro at gmail.com, where you can email us about the Meikokaji book contest, which... Uh, uh, you can listen to the middle of our episode for instructions on what that is all about. And please rate and review us on iTunes and or whatever podcast uh, listening method you have, because we love to get those uh, reviews and, and, and tell your friends uh, if you think that they'd be into this co- uh, podcast for sure. And uh, tune in next week or next month, I keep saying that, <laughs> for uh, Daimajin. Daimajin.